This is The Actors Room, episode number four, and the episode title is Marlon Brando, part three. This will be the final addition to Marlon Brando. It's been a journey. We'll wrap it up today. I hope you enjoy this show. I think it's going to be a good one. All right, here we go. My name is Jeff Tarowski, and welcome back once again to another episode of the podcast called The Actors Room. Now today, we're going to finish up with Marlon Brando. We're going to end it all, the third part, and we're going to talk about all the important films that he did in the second half of his career. It's tough to talk about the second half of his career because it's a mixed bag, big time. You're going to have a stretch of a decade in the 60s where there are a lot of clunkers, some bad movies. But, like I said previously, if you take a look at some of those movies, and some of them are hard to find because they suck, you do learn something from Marlon Brando, whether it's one moment or two. But there might have been some of those films he did care about a little bit. Uh, Most of them I don't think he did. He just wanted a paycheck and walked through them. But it's still Marlon Brando and you still get some greatness in those productions. So I just wanted to put that out there. But we're going to start out this episode talking about One-Eyed Jacks. Now, Bud's production company, which was named Pennebaker Incorporated, needed to make a picture. Uh, And they needed to do it quickly. Bud did not have much interest in the company. He states that he started the company to give his father something to do. Paramount supported the company and was getting restless because the company wasn't producing any films. You got to understand, he gives his father this, I think he was president or something along those lines. I mean, he was pretty much in charge. Now, there were other partners and they were doing their jobs. I don't know how well they were doing their jobs, but... Bud would be in on meetings, always in the loop, and he had to make the final decisions. Now, that was a problem. He would um, mumble, bumble about, and not give him a final answer. Just It just seemed like he didn't give a shit. It was sort of something he did, and they really needed him to step up and at least make some decisions. But he was reluctant to do that at times. So... Paramount's like, listen, you're going to have to start producing some films here or we're just going to, you know, get rid of this company. We're going to close you down. So Bud decided to put his pet project into production. It was originally called Burst of Vermilion, but they ultimately decided to call the movie One-Eyed Jacks. His good friend Carlo Fiore helped him revise the script. When time came to pick a director, Bud ultimately chose Stanley Kubrick. Now, the young Kubrick had just completed the film Paths of Glory, which was a a nice success, a good film. Uh, Bud held a private screening of the film and was very impressed. With Stanley in tow, they began working with the script. 
Most days consisted of Brando and Kubrick playing dominoes, drinking, and playing chess. Kubrick was working Brando to let him do it Stanley's way. Soon enough, Brando's people were being fired and Kubrick's people were being hired. Imagine this scene. Everyone was without shoes walking around Brando's Mulholland home. Kubrick, for some reason, routinely took his pants off and walked in only his underwear and dress shirt. Brando sat cross-legged on the floor, and when the discussion became too emotional, Brando would bang on his Chinese gong to lessen the tension. So there would be this huge gong in the middle of the room, and Brando would be sitting there cross-legged. So they're going over the script, getting heated, discussing what's next, and how do we do this scene, or where's this scene going? And the discussion would get heated. Tempers might have flared, bad words coming out of people's mouths, Stanley Kubrick running around in his underwear, Brando would sound his gong, you know, to just lessen the pressure in the building a bit. So I thought that was a cute little story and a nice little image of young Stanley Kubrick running around in his underwear, but he did have a shirt on. So that's a good thing. Kubrick and Brando began to disagree more and more about the script and, moreover, about the casting. Stanley wanted Spencer Tracy to play opposite Brando. Carl Malden was already promised the role, and Brando wasn't budging. The shoot was three months behind schedule, and Malden was already pulling in a salary. And if you remember earlier, he bought his house because... He was being paid pre-overtime. I mean, they didn't even start shooting yet. But Malden already had it in his contract, signed and delivered, that he was going to be paid at a certain time. It's not his fault that Brando and Kubrick were taking forever to write the script. But in that meantime, Carl Malden got himself a nice little payday (laughs) and bought a house with that money. Not bad. Not bad at all. He says it's the house that Jack's built. The total payday for Malden was around $400,000. After a while, it was clear what Brando wanted. Kubrick gone and for himself to direct the picture. I think that is what he wanted all along, really. Um, I think that after a certain amount of time, either being with Stanley or I think he did have a few other people he had in mind to direct a picture. But I think ultimately he wanted to do it on his own. And in the process, getting a little advice from Stanley Kubrick, maybe just getting a little taste of what he might have done with the project. But all in all, this was Brando's picture. Uh, Brando was setting himself up for full-on protection mode going into this film. He was preparing to have all bases covered if the project was a complete and utter failure. I mean, come on. This was all Brando. And because of this, we get this gut-wrenching quote. And here it goes. This is the quote. I have no respect for acting. Acting, by and large, is the expression of a neurotic impulse. I've never in my life met an actor who is not neurotic. Not that it's bad to be neurotic. It's just not satisfying. 
Acting is a bum's life, in that it leads to perfect self-indulgence. You get paid for doing nothing, and it all adds up to nothing. Acting is fundamentally a childish thing to pursue. Quitting acting? That is the mark of maturity. Wow. End quote. <laughs> now, wow is not in that quote. I put that in there. My wow is, is my wow. And I say, I don't know what to take from that quote of how much he really means that, or he's just covering his ass so that if the movie completely bombs, it's like, well, you know, he really doesn't care anyway. So, you know, we'll just kind of brush it off. Like, you know, he tried, and he just kind of threw things up in the air, and, you know, no wonder it failed. But that's not the case, people. And this is the thing that he would do, is that, uh, and I'm, I don't want to pick and choose the projects that he really did care about, but he did care about a lot of them. And that is why he was so good, is because he did care. He put a lot of time and effort and sweat into these roles to make them as real as possible. And this project, One Eye Jacks, is a great example of all Marlon Brando, because not only did he act in it, but he was collaborating and writing it his own way. And he directed this movie and produced this movie. He did it all with this film. And he took his time. He really did. Okay. Brando was a tough guy. He had a rough childhood and a lot of resentment towards his father's drinking. And what it did to the family. One of his co-stars remarked, how he was a guy you would want on your side in a bar fight. A few punches and it's over. No chairs, just fists. Bud started filming and warned the producers that he was making a picture, not a schedule. He was going to take his time. Of course, movie was way over budget. Bud would take directing the film very personally. He would wait for the perfect wave to come in so the shot would be perfect. He would sit and wait for hours. Bud and Carl Malden worked great together and their chemistry worked. I love the film. and It is one of my favorite westerns to watch. I'm, I'm not a big western guy. I have not seen a lot of westerns. But the westerns that I have seen, this is just one of my favorites. And it's because you got Marlon Brando in it, of course, and Carl Malden. But the story is good. Here's a little tidbit here on Brando and how he felt about friends that he felt betrayed him. Carlo Fiore had stayed friends with Stanley Kubrick and was offered a job by the director. Carlo took the job and Brando found out about it. He immediately fired Carlo on the set of One-Eyed Jacks. Now Carlo would tag around with Brando and Brando would get him jobs on pretty much Every film that he was in, um, he could just be either an advisor uh, to the script. Uh, he would help out. I think in this production, he was assistant to the producer or something like that. So Carlo tagged along. And when Brando felt that he was being taken advantage of, it's like he was pissed. So this is what happened. This is a quote from Brando. And this is how he fired him. I'm letting you go. 
I can't carry you anymore. And Carlo said he felt a little hostility coming his way. Then Brando said in reply, quote, I'm still going to give you that single card screen credit I promised you. Your old Brooklyn buddies will be impressed when they see it, end quote. One-Eyed Jacks finally wrapped and the budget was millions of dollars over. Millions. I think they started out with a budget of about $1.5 million. Well, it ended up being around $8 million. So that is way over budget. Bud struggled with the editing process and then eventually produced an eight-hour version. Woo! It's a long film. Then a four-and-a-half-hour version. Now we're getting there. He called it a director's cut. Bud would also cut it down a bit more because the executives were going, okay, we're getting there, keep going, a three-hour version. Now, those that saw this three-hour version said it was a masterpiece. But we will never see it because the extra footage was destroyed. The studio was fed up because it wasn't getting that two-hour film they wanted, and they took the editing away from him. It was no longer his to play with, and I think Bud was sort of relieved. It wasn't his film anymore, but the whole process of sitting in a tiny little room, going over film, taking hours and hours, it just wasn't his bag. As much as he loved that film and put his whole heart into it, directed it and wrote it and starred in it and doing all that other stuff, took a lot out of him, and by the time... He was cutting it down. You know, he had an eight-hour one, then a four-hour one, then a three-hour. So he was constantly cutting stuff out and trying to keep in all the stuff that he really wanted. So when they took it away from him, I think he was a little relieved just to be done with it. Although the film didn't make a profit, it's great nonetheless, and Brando cared. And Carl Malden looked back with fondness to be involved with this venture, and he kept a picture of him and Bud during the shooting, the inscription read, In remembrance of things that will never be passed, we had the very best of one another. That's a lot for our life. With love and respect and friendship, Marlon. There are a string of films between One Eye Jacks and The Godfather that is less than desirable. Of note is Mutiny on the Bounty, and I say that because... This introduced him to Tahiti, and he fell in love. He just fell in love with that region. He fell in love with the people. He could go there and just be himself and not worry about people coming up to him for autographs. You know, these people in Tahiti, when they were filming Mutiny, they didn't know really who Marlon Brando was. They were just natives. You know, they didn't have TVs maybe and they really didn't give a shit who he was. And he loved that. His, he had that animity back that he missed when he was a kid. He hadn't had it for a long time. So Tahiti not only was beautiful, it was an island, and he could be himself. So when he was done filming Mutiny on the Bounty, he couldn't wait to go back. He couldn't wait. Ugh, the women were beautiful. Ugh. It was his paradise. It was going to be his paradise. And he had it in his mind. There is no doubt about it. I'm going back there. No doubt. Uh, 
He worked with his sister Jocelyn in The Ugly Americans. Uh, also worked with Charlie Chaplin in A Countess from Hong Kong. Chaplin directed it, and Bud would comment later on that the legend Charlie Chaplin was sadistic and at times and hard to work with. The film Reflections in a Golden Eye, if you've never seen that film, that's another highly recommended film by me. It's a, another hard movie to find about Brando. I got it years ago. I had to buy it on Amazon, and it's it's a tape. It's a cassette tape that I have. I mean, I don't even, I can I don't even have it on DVD. I have it on a cassette tape. But his performance is really good. I was shocked about I don't know why I was shocked. Maybe just because in that time period, in that decade, the '60s, he did really crappy movies. But this one it was actually pretty damn good. So if you've never seen Reflections, you get a lot out of his acting in that film. So that is one to watch for sure. Um, so please watch that one. Uh, his acting is precise and deep in that movie. And he worked well alongside Elizabeth Taylor, and she was always fantastic. I, I love Taylor. Um, and the movie Burn is also a fine picture as well. And Brando revealed that this film was his most satisfying film. Okay, here we go. The Godfather. We're going to skip. I skipped over a lot of those crappy movies in the 60s. Um, and, you know, if you want to leave reviews and if there's a movie that I left out and you want to talk about with Brando, just let me know. And I will. I'll either bring it up in a section of a podcast or if it's juicy enough, I'll dedicate a whole episode to it. I don't care. If you want to talk about what what, what would be Candy, the, the movie Candy that he did, which I thought was absolutely horrible, but you love it and you want to talk about it, I'll dive into it. I don't care. Shit. Marlon was in it. Why not? But anyways, skipping ahead to The Godfather. Yes, The Godfather. Mario Puzo is the author of the best-selling book of the same name. Puzo campaigned to lure Brando into the film adaptation. Now, you gotta understand something. The character of The Godfather is in his 60s. I think like 65. 65. And Brando at this time was 47. So, I mean, it's a difference there between 47 and 65. You age quite a lot between those two, I think. So he may not have been too thrilled about doing this role at first. Like, uh, going to play a 65-year-old guy. I'm f- in my mid-40s, really. Like that 20-year gap. I don't know if I could do that. But anyway, Puzo felt that Brando would be perfect for the role. And with Bud's string of mostly poor films in the past decade, the two mediums needed one another. The timing was right, and Brando was due for a defining role. Director Francis Ford Coppola was very excited to do this movie. He was, of course, Italian, and he really wanted to paint the portrait of family being the driving force in this film. And if you've ever seen The Godfather, which you better have, you'll know and appreciate the same thing. The movie is more than a mobster movie. It's about family. It's about loyalty. 
And he even says that he wanted it to be so authentic that he wanted the audience to smell the spaghetti sauce, you know, make it seem like they're sitting there in the kitchen smelling, you know, mom making the spaghetti sauce, homemade spaghetti sauce. And if you notice, the, they used a certain tint um, to the film. It, it's almost like a, a golden color, an older looking uh, period piece feel to it. And, and Francis Ford did a great job in portraying that. Uh, I think it goes a little unnoticed, but a really nice touch, and he nailed it. Okay, um, Francis was open to the idea of Brando, but the executives were not. Because he hadn't done a really good movie in a long time, he had a bad reputation, he just wasn't the hot ticket anymore. It seemed like, oh, you know, Brando's, you know, not as big and, and not as good as he used to be, so... You know, why would you want him in this picture? Why put up with that shit? Uh, But Francis kept at it and finally convinced the executives to at least give him a screen test. I mean, just, you know, let us go down there. Let him say a few, let him do a scene. And we'll bring it back here and I'll let you watch it. They're like, fine, just go ahead, get out of here. So he's like, great. So, and that is exactly what happened. Bud went to work with some makeup and stuffed gauze in his mouth to make himself look like a bulldog. He would speak with the infamous winded strained voice because the character had damaged his throat in the past. So he wanted to be real. Francis was amazed at the transformation. He played the screen test for the executives and they didn't even recognize Brando at all. They're like, who's that? He looks Italian. (laughs) So like, no, remember I was supposed to go down and give Marlon Brando a screen test? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Brando? Hmm, interesting. But they still weren't convinced. They hesitated, gave it a few weeks. Francis kept at him. So they're like, fine, go do it, fine. So Brando would play the Don. Here's a quote from Brando. Quote, I've always felt that you can't ever play a part that's either bigger than you are in your personality or so far out of reach for you that you fall on your face. I had no frame of reference to play a 65-year-old Italian, end quote. Bud was 47 years old at this time, and I mentioned that earlier. Pacino was a dark horse to play his son, Michael. The studio wanted a big name. I think they were looking at uh, Ryan O'Neill... You know, Robert Redford. And what's really weird is that Ryan O'Neill and Redford, I mean, they don't look Italian at all. At all. I mean, you got you got Brando. I mean, you fix him up a little bit, you know, dark hair and stuff like you saw. And he passed it off very well. He looked Italian. And Pacino, he is Italian. So that makes sense. Um, James Caan, he looked Italian. So, I mean, let's get serious. You're, you're casting a, a movie about Italians. It might be a good idea to get an actor that actually does look Italian. Ryan O'Neill does not look Italian at all. Thank God. Thank God they did this the right way. Now, I guess Pacino gave an awful audition. Just awful. The first time he, he comes in, I guess, and he didn't even have his lines memorized. He's just kind of... 
fumbling around. So, but Francis was still intrigued by him because he had give given a performance in a film called Panic in Needle Park about a heroin addict. And that was his first big film. So he was pretty much unknown at that time. But Francis nonetheless was impressed with that role. And he felt, that's Michael. That's my Michael. I know it. I just know it. But the executives are like, really? I don't, I don't get the whole thing. I mean, he's not known. What does he bring? He's like, for some reason, I, that's my Michael. I have a feeling about it. So let's bring him in one more time. So Pacino gets a second chance. And in his second audition, he did a little better, but still, he just wasn't grasping the dialogue. But Francis still thought, listen, I don't know why I have a feeling about this kid. I don't know what it is. And even Brando, who listened in on the audition, said, you got to take this kid. He's a brooder, he said, and so am I. It just makes sense. Hire the kid. During filming, Brando would ask the cinematographer which lens would be used and how much of his body would be appearing in the frame. He was aware of having to determine how big or small the field size of the screen would be, and he adjusted his movements accordingly. Now the cinematographer quoted, saying, I saw that he had a very attuned sense of visual containment, end quote. The stage was set for the opening scene of the film with Robert Duvall, James Caan, and even Al Pacino in attendance. These were all young actors that revered Brando's talent. He was like a god to them. Okay, the cat story I love because it's a great example of Brando's improving skills because... The story is that there was a cat sort of walking around the set. And I'm not sure if it was owned by anybody, but I think it was a stray. And it was just kind of hanging around the set a lot. So Brando took it upon himself to take the cat, put it on his lap, and use it in the scene. Now, this was something Francis, I don't think, was too you know thrilled about at first. But I think he just, you know, okay, it's Brando just... Let him do it, see where it goes. And he uses the cat, you know, he pets the cat, strokes the cat. And it's just a cute little part of the scene where, you know, that cat is just kind of, you know, he's just stretching back and getting a nice little, you know, petting from Brando. And he takes the cat and he just like flings it on the desk when he's done with his dialogue. You know, when he gets up, he just takes the cat and flings it on. So, you know, it's just a cute little part of Brando in his genius to use the cat like that. And most people will say, and this is kind of cool, most people will say that the cat gave a great performance, and he did. Brando was nothing short of a bona fide professional on the set of The Godfather. He was accommodating and generous. He played nice. Top executives were worried about Francis Ford, though. The rushes were viewed and were called boring. There was talk that he would be replaced by Kazan. Then Brando stepped in and said that if Francis is fired, guess what? They can fire me too. Many fans showed up to witness his death scene in the movie, you know, where he gets shot while he's buying fruit. Each take would receive applause as it ended. He even gave a little bow to the fans when they wrapped up the scene. 
there is no doubt Brando used cue cards that had his lines on them. <laughs> There's, he did. He admits it. He even admits to even later on, he would get a little earpiece, like a flesh-colored earpiece that he'd put in his ear, and he would have one of his assistants in a trailer across the way, you know, just feeding him his lines. <laughs> Man, that'd be awesome. Could you imagine how awesome that would be? You know, because, you know, I've done a lot of plays and musicals and, you know, just stage productions, one-act one stuff, even the one-act stuff, you know. They're going to have a lot of lines. It's a lot to remember doing scenes and stuff like that. Just sitting down and memorizing your lines. And not only do you have to memorize your lines, you have to know everybody else's lines because you got to know when your line's next, right? So what a brilliant move. Having a little earpiece in your ear and you got your assistant across the street in a trailer going, all right, all right, bud. Okay, uh, your next line is going to be Hi there. Are you going to uh, take that chair? <laughs> All right. Okay, bud, you ready? After he says, get out of my face, okay, you're going to say, don't you ever say that to me again. You know, I could, I mean, I just, I couldn't imagine, like, a trying to stay in a scene and have somebody talking in my ear, like, like a little, like a buzzing, because I'm sure it was like a little, like, but this is Phil. You ready? Um, so he would use the cue cards and he, like I said, admits it. He thought it was a great idea. And you could see him in scenes where he's talking and he looks down and he gives it a second. And then he looks back up and then he gives his line and he'll listen to the other actor. And then it's his line again. And then he'll finish listening and then he'll look down. And he looked back up. <laughs> you got to watch him later on. Like, he does it blatantly. It's so obvious, but he's still so good. <laughs> so he felt, <laughs> he felt that it sounded more natural to have his cards for reference. And the pauses made it seem like he was thinking about what he was going to say next. Maybe it was laziness. Eh. But, you know, Brando's explanation... And listen to this quote. Here we go. Here's the quote. Real people don't know what they're going to say. Their words often come as a surprise to them. That's the way it should be in a movie, right? If you know your lines, very often, most of the time, it sounds like Mary had a little lamb. End quote. The actor who played Luca Brazzi played a joke on him during their scene. Now, Luca Brazzi opened his mouth, stuck out his tongue, and revealed a piece of paper that read, Fuck you, Marlon. Then Brando returned the favor by sticking his tongue out on the next take, revealing a note that said, Fuck you too. Everyone laughed. Even Francis couldn't help himself. They all laughed. It was a good little moment. You get it, you know, on, on film sets, I'm sure you, you gotta break the tension every now and then. I mean, these guys are working hours upon hours and sometimes working late into the night. There are rough days and you gotta stay upbeat, right? So I'm sure moments like that happen a lot on film sets, especially when people are getting along pretty well. You're gonna have some light moments and I'm sure Bud supplied a lot of those. Brando and Francis worked well together. Bud's insight was well received. Bud trusted Francis, and his performance was natural. 
on a funny note, there had been a mooning competition. Mooning meaning you pull down your pants and you show your ass. It was between Robert Duvall, James Kahn, and Brando. Duvall and Kahn started it, and they mooned the whole crew one day with Brando and Francis in attendance. Brando saw this and said, oh, it's on. So they would go back and forth mooning each other from time to time, you know, in weird moments. Uh, But I guess the ultimate one was, if you remember in the beginning of the film with the whole wedding scene, there's a, a part in that scene where the photographer gets the whole family together, like the big family picture of a wedding. I mean, it looked like there was about, you know, 40, 50 people in this shot. Just a, you know, big family. And they're getting ready to shoot this picture, right? And they're like, where's Brando? Like, Bud, come over here. So he's like, okay, I'll be right there. So he comes walking over, stops in front of everybody, turns around, drops his trousers, shows his ass, and it's to everybody. I mean, all those, and there were kids there too. So he got a little bit in trouble for that, I think, with complaints and things like that. But ultimately, that was it. Bud won the contest. He won the mooning competition. (laughs) Bud cared about this picture, and it showed. He turned in a riveting performance, and the image of him as the Godfather is epic. I mean, think about it. Just think about that for a second. The the image of him, and you know, got the rose, and he's got his tux on, you know, slick back hair. The image of that that guy. You know, people know that image. You show it to somebody, and I think most people would know that image, the Godfather. Most people know him because of that role. Uh, people ask, you know, who's Marlon Brando? And you say, you know, the guy that was in The Godfather, he was The Godfather. And they say, oh yeah. I think it's his third best. I do. It's his third best part right behind Streetcar and on the waterfront. That's just my opinion. I may talk in depth about The Godfather sooner than later. I haven't decided yet. I'm going to dedicate a whole podcast to The Godfather because there's just a lot to talk about. And I can't talk about everything in this podcast because I have to move on and talk more about other movies of Brando. But I want to do that sooner than later. When the shooting wrapped up for Bud, he downplayed his acting in the film, of course. This is his quote. Just burn the negatives, he said. Ugh. (laughs) End quote. Um... An artist will never be happy, will they? Uh, That's my opinion. I just, I get that because I've been around a lot of artists, either actors or writers, producers, producers, you know, producers are just as bad. They're artists too, okay? You get to a certain point where I think you become satisfied in a certain way, but it's never 100%. You always feel like there could be a lot more, okay, I lied just then, you can put in a lot more, not just a little bit. There's always something you can make better or you will see an inconsistency. Something doesn't fit right uh, in, in a painting. You're like, oh my gosh, what? my brother paints and he's a wonderful artist and he can spend so much time on just one portrait 
one work of art, dedicating weeks, months, okay, to just one piece of art. And he'll destroy it because it's not going well. I don't understand it. But that's reality. An artist, if it's not going right, you know, they, they just, they can't take it. It's just, it's hard to explain. So I think Bud expressed that in his work. Although it was very good, right? Even to him, he still saw the faults. And he still felt that, oh man, I could have done that so much better right there. I know that scene that I did two days ago, I, I'm still thinking about it. Why I didn't do it differently that day, I don't know. But I wish I could go back and do it. And believe me, if these artists could go back and do it differently, they would. They would. So, in other words, the pinnacle will never be reached. It just won't. That's just the way it is. And that's the beautiful thing about art. Brilliant work done by a brilliant artist. Marlon Brando may not agree that he was an artist. Sorry, bud. You were. Brando's second Academy Award victory came with controversy. The Godfather role gave him the opportunity to flex his political muscle. He sent a Native American named Sashin Littlefeather to the podium, and she explained in a letter written by Brando would be read after the ceremony. He was disheartened that the film industry wasn't recognizing American Indians within the entertainment business. In my opinion, it was a shoddy move. I'm not in favor of using your personal opinions during a show like the Oscars. Okay, I understand it wasn't the first time this happened, and it is definitely not the last time. I mean, didn't uh, Meryl Streep, who I respect so much as an artist, she is one of the best actresses ever. But she, you know, she got up there and was being all political. I heard, I didn't see it, but I heard about it, and I can only imagine. It's just, it's not, I guess, you know, you are on the, you are on the podium and you're giving your opinion about stuff, but that's not the platform to do it, okay? This ceremony, it's an Oscar ceremony. We're celebrating film. We're celebrating short films. We're celebrating writing. I mean, no business spewing out your political beliefs. You know, just get up there, say thank you for the award. It's a great honor. And you walk off the fucking stage. I'm sorry. It just pisses me off. It really does. And Brando doing this, it really, it's very disheartening to me. Um, and I thought I would just go ahead and, and put that out there. Sorry if I got a little uh, heated with that. Uh, but I have a very strong opinion on this matter. Um, so that's that. Director Bernardo Bertolucci would not take no for an answer. Marlon Brando had to star in his next movie, Last Tango in Paris. The director talked with Bud about the project and explained it was about their lives, their loves, and sex. Bud was intrigued, and both of them dived deep into discussion every day about sexual identity and family. Bernardo is quoted as saying, there is an element of wild, irrational violence. Then 
he becomes incredibly intelligent. The director had it in his mind to use the script as a guide and concentrate solely on improv. Brando would have no problem with that concept. That was his forte. Bud was encouraged to investigate questions of despair, isolation, sexual obsession, and use memories of his childhood. There are some awesome quotes by Bernardo that I have to share. Uh, Here goes one of them. Here's the quote. He was an angel as a man and a monster as an actor. He is all instinct, but at the same time, he is a complex man. On one side, he needs to be loved by all. On another, he is a machine incessantly producing charm. On still another, he has the wisdom of an Indian sage. End quote. Brando was to use all of himself. Exposure to the nth degree. Everything was on the table. Everything. No boundaries. Use everything you have inside. The director wanted him to forget about the character, which name was Paul, and remember himself. The director became smitten with Brando. Now, Bernardo would do this with most of the actors in his films. He really got into the picture, and he really got entangled in the lives of his actors. So he, in a way, fell in love with the actors that he worked with. The film was to be extremely graphic sexually and rumored to be an X-rated picture. Because of this, it was rejected by most studios, of course. I mean, who's going to want to produce an X-rated film? Now, maybe X-rated meant something different back then. I don't know. But that's very risky, especially in this time. Tango's goal was to use sex to portray and explain pain, grief, and loneliness. In one of the scenes, Bernardo was filming Brando from the back while a train roars past him overhead. Bud didn't understand why the director was behind him, filming his back. He should be in front of me, he thought. And in his frustration, Brando placed his hands over his ears and bellowed a shrieking scream. Bernardo was scared that he would not be able to work on the level of this actor. Brando and the director would huddle together before daily filming and talk for hours about the scenes. The communication was astounding. Bud was riding high and feeling confident. This was the real thing, and he knew it. Uh, Friends of Brando at this time state that he was calling them up and talking about his positive experience in the film. It was an exciting experience, he said, and I'm thrilled. I'm I'm thrilled with the relationship I have with the director, and it's just going along fine. Brando had the freedom to experiment. The director allowed him to dig deep and let him do whatever he wanted. The artistic doors were being swung open, and they produced an authentic performance. I find this fascinating because Bud had great difficulty showing his deep and hurtful scars. He just did. But this director, Bernardo, I mean, he got it out of him. And he explains how he was able to strip Brando apart. Here we go. Here's a quote. 
I make documentaries on actors. All my films are documentaries on my actors. I follow them. I let them do whatever they want, end quote. Bertolucci was creating a safe place for Brando. Bud spoke French in this film. When he finally met his co-star, Maria Schneider, he took her for a walk and explained that it was important for them to get to know one another because, quote-unquote, you're going to have to put your finger up my ass. <laughs> uh, it's so bad. God, I hope she didn't really have to put her finger up his ass. I mean, I know it's in the movie. My God, that's awful. The director was insistent on using nudity in the film, and Brando was unhappy with this. He made a deal that he would wear his overcoat during the sex scenes. Now, Brando was very self-conscious about his weight um, at this time. He was uh, eating a lot, and he was having to go on crash diets to do the films that he wanted to do. So in this film, of course, because of all the sexual scenes, the director really wanted Brando to be naked. And Brando said, ain't gonna happen. Ain't gonna happen. I haven't lost enough weight, and I just believe that he didn't want to do nude scenes and I can understand that so he convinced the director to have him at least wear an overcoat and it played in pretty well with the movie's overall theme because Maria's character is young and he's older and it just seemed appropriate that I mean she's naked pretty much all the time you see everything from her uh, and Brando keeps his clothes on. So I, I guess it worked out pretty well anyway. Then the director offered up a ridiculous request. He wanted Brando to screw Maria on screen. Brando said that would be impossible. Not only unethical and unacceptable, but if that happened, their sexual organs would become the centerpiece of the film. The scene where Bud is at his dead wife's casket That was gut-wrenching to watch, and it was gut-wrenching for him because it reminded him of his mother. There were cue cards everywhere. He even wanted to tape some of those cue cards onto Maria's ass. But getting serious, but getting serious now. Okay, I have to say that this is a tremendous film. It's hard to watch at times, but you get to see Brando at his best once again, He truly did play himself on screen. You are seeing the real Marlon Brando in this role. That is really him. The monologue he gives about his parents, those stories are true. I want to quote Peter Mantle's biography on Brando. Here it is. What Brando actually created was a complex speech that exposed not only the spiritual isolation of his character, but also the still painful scars of his own life. In a halting and haunting voice, he talked about his parents and the years in the Libertyville house with the stable out back. It was as open and as truthful an utterance as he had ever made in public or even in private to his closest friends. End quote. This role would garner him another Oscar nomination. 
Surprisingly to me, because of all the fuss he made at the previous award show, because of his acceptance speech. Last Tango made Brando a lot of money. His smart move was collecting on a percentage of the gross. This was a big mistake that he made with The Godfather. He needed money right away when he did The Godfather, so instead of taking less up front and banking on the success of the film and take a percentage, Brando went ahead and took the money up front. With the success of The Godfather, he missed out on $2 million. Bad move, bud. But he didn't know, and he needed the money right away. So he went ahead and just bit the bullet, took the, the sure money, and he didn't know how big The Godfather was going to be. I mean, there's just no way he could have foreseen that. So him missing out on that $2 million, and that, that must have just been like, you got to be kidding me. $2 million. So he vowed to never make that mistake again. So when they were signing contracts for Last Tango, he went ahead and said, okay, you know what? We're going to go ahead and we're going to accept those terms. I will take points. I will take a percentage of the gross. And that was a good idea because Tango made a lot of money. And uh, it was estimated that he walked away making probably more than $4 million from Tango. Um, making Apocalypse Now was no picnic, especially for Francis Ford Coppola. I will dedicate an episode to Apocalypse Now in the future, so I don't want to dive too much into the film, but I will talk about the Brando parts. Um, Brando showed up on set extremely overweight. He also promised Francis that he would read the book Heart of Darkness, but he didn't. Now, Heart of Darkness is the novel that would eventually become Apocalypse Now. Now, did he know his lines? Nope. And he would spend hours upon hours of discussing the script with Francis that delayed the shooting to an alarming degree. Self-conscious of his weight, Brando and the cinematographer thought of ways to conceal his girth. They used smoke and machines and, and they used lighting to perfection. Brando would literally come out of the shadows. And I love this part because Francis... He made him seem like such a mysterious character throughout the whole film. I like how they talk about him all throughout the film. And you see like a picture of him, a few pictures here and there, and you know, things like that. So they did a good job of making him very mysterious and having him come out of the shadows the way he did. And he's all bald-headed. And that was a choice by Brando as well. He wanted to shave his head. In his last lines, you know, when he says, The whore, the whore. Those are just unforgettable, aren't they? Oh, the choice of his... Because that was all improv. That's all Brando. That's not in the script. I can guarantee you that. That's just all him. Coming up with all these phrases. And he thought long and hard about all of these things. And sometimes it would just come to him and he would just say it. And I guess there's a lot of footage from Apocalypse Now that it were erased and forgotten about and destroyed and... Oh, how wonderful it would be to listen to some of that, you know, footage that was left on the floor or destroyed. Oh, now that's a horror. The movie A Dry White Season is a nice film. 
Um, and it also got him his final Oscar nomination for Best Actor. He would be nominated for a total of eight Academy Awards, winning two. The two victories were On the Waterfront and The Godfather. The other nominations were for A Streetcar Named Desire, Viva Zabata, Julius Caesar, Sayonara, Last Tango in Paris, and A Dry White Season. Other films of note are The Island of Dr. Moreau. Due to just the weirdness factor, man, that's a weird one. But vaguely entertaining nonetheless, isn't it? Just to see Brando with all that makeup on and like those dresses he was wearing and things like that. Very strange. And I think that him and Val Kilmer got along very well on the set. And Val Kilmer looked up to him. The Freshman... That one was pretty good. I, I enjoyed that movie. I'm a big fan of Matthew Broderick as well. He just, I don't know, Matthew Broderick is good. And I enjoyed watching all his stuff when uh, he was doing uh, Bloxy Blues and, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I grew up watching that guy. So, you know, he holds a special place in my heart. So watching The Freshman, I always enjoy watching. And Brando brought a nice comedic touch to his character. Very smooth and very lighthearted, kind of making fun of his godfather role. He did a really nice job in that film. It was cute. And I do like the score. Watching him and De Niro sitting at the table, reacting off of one another, was just heaven to watch. It really was. Brando, though controversial a figure, brought a new way of acting to the table for future generations of actors. He pushed the limits, and like a tornado, knocked us all on our asses. His talent should never, ever be forgotten. Watch his films. Really watch him. Take another look at how powerful his acting in Streetcar is. Notice how free and natural he is. How he took in all his surroundings, and all they had to offer him. Look into his eyes, and you can see his depth shining through. Thank you, bud, for all of your talent and your inspiration. You reached out, and you touched many of us. It was an honor dedicating three episodes of this podcast to Marlon Brando. It was great. Thank you, bud. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. This was kind of an emotional episode for me, just because it means a lot to me. And that might seem silly to some people. And you know what? I don't fucking care. He opened up art for me in a way that you would look at a, a wonderful work of art, like a piece of, you know, like a painting... And it moving you. Um, and that's what Brando did for me when I was a very impressionable young man in New York City learning about something that I was passionate about. Um, he made it even more passionate for me with how wonderful he was and how great he was. So I want to thank all of you for listening to me talk about Marlon Brando. It was an honor. It was great. I enjoyed every second. Every single second. So... Please leave reviews, comments, remarks, 
anything you can. It'll help. I, I need it, you know? So please do that and subscribe if you haven't yet. That really helps. Spread the word about this podcast. And the next episode will be about James Dean. It should be a blast. Thanks again, everyone. Put in a movie tonight, right? You know what? Put a Brando film in. It'll make me happy. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you very much. Have a good one.